I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. In each podcast, we talk to inspiring individuals who are using entrepreneurial tactics to make the world a better place. Last week, I spoke with Michael Contempasis about his decades of experience with the Boston Public Schools, the current state of admissions at the exam schools, in particular Boston Latin School, and where BPS should focus efforts to make our school system more equitable. Today, we dig even more deeply into admissions at the exam schools in BPS by talking with Joshua Goodman. Josh is an associate professor of economics at Brandeis. He joined Brandeis from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he was an associate professor of public policy. An applied microeconomist studying education policy, he focuses largely on the determinants and long-run impacts of both college choice and math coursework. His peer-reviewed research has been cited in multiple White House reports and featured in the New York Times and the Washington Post, as well as on national public radio. Josh, welcome. It's great to talk with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so could you start out by just telling us a little bit about your work and where it is focused? Yeah. Um, actually, before I did my PhD in economics, I was a public high school math teacher in Watertown, Massachusetts. Okay. So I've always been fascinated by math and STEM education more generally. So some of my research focuses on ways that we can do math and STEM education better. Mm. Um, and a lot of my other work focuses on uh, the factors that um, affect students' choices of the classes they're taking in high school or the choice of whether and where to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm very interested in, in sort of the things that affect students' choices in their educational pathways. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so that's that. So we'll have to get into that because I think that's the other side of the coin on the study that we're going to talk about today. Um, we're go- we're going to do a deep dive today into a study that you published last October called Increasing Diversity in Boston's Exam Schools. And last week we had um, Michael Contempasis on the program to talk with him about Boston Latin School in particular and the challenges that they're facing. Um, and, and you actually have published a study about exam schools and enrollment. And can you talk to us about why you did this study? Yeah, um, we did this study uh, in partnership with the Boston Public Schools, um, who were willing to share uh, data on sort of students' pathways with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the purpose of the study was to figure out where in the pipeline, sort of from elementary school to the point where students enter the Boston exam schools, where in that pipeline are we losing uh, black and Hispanic students? who we would like to see better represented at the exam schools, particularly at the Boston Latin School, which is um, substantially less diverse than the Boston public school system as a whole is. Right. And so the goal was to try to understand where, sort of where, at what point in time we were losing students and what kinds of factors were, were uh, creating those losses. Yeah. And so, and so you were looking at seventh through 12th graders who are enrolling in exam schools and the exam school students make up what, percentage of total student population? Yeah, so, so Boston's a bit unusual, um, at least during the time period of our study, and I think this is still true. There are three exam schools that, mm-hmm. that run from 7th to 12th grade, and I believe they enroll something like 25% of the students of that age in the Boston public school. So they, mm-hmm. those three schools are large relative to the system. Mo- most cities that have exam schools, like 
Stuyvesant in New York or Chicago public schools, the, the exam schools are a much smaller fraction of the school system. But here, uh, they're, they're a pretty meaningful piece of the pie. Yeah, they're, they're significant. They're each very large schools. And the, the interesting thing to me is, is you opened up your study in, in the executive summary. You talk about something that we talked about last week as well, which is that while 75% about the, of the population, the student population in Boston public schools is either black or Hispanic, um, that, that is not the ratio that's represented in the exam schools. And can you talk a little bit about that? That's right. So um, the exam schools are substantially uh, have substantially fewer Black and Hispanic students than the the public school system does as a whole in Boston. And part of the purpose of our study was to ask the question: uh, To what extent is that difference in diversity of the exam schools due to differences in academic achievement uh, in early years leading up to entrance into the exam school? So there's right. some people out there who would say, "Well, it's not surprising that." that the exam schools are less diverse because black and Hispanic students are not academically prepared to go into them. Right. Uh, that's one set of claims that's being made. Uh, another set of claims being made is that there are other barriers to entry into these schools that have nothing to do with academic achievement. And part of our goal in this study was to try to disentangle those a bit. Right. And, so, and the other things would be student choice. Uh, what, would, what would the other things be that would prevent well, I, I think the other, the, the kinds of barriers that people are focused on is, you know, the admissions, so the way that admissions to the exam schools currently work mm -hmm. is that it's based on two factors, each of which is sort of 50% of, a, of, of the decision. Uh, one is a student's um, basically elementary school GPA, fifth and maybe sixth grade GPA. Mm -hmm. And the other is their score on a, a standardized exam called the IC, the ISEE exam, the um, independent schools entrance exam, which is an optional exam that students can take if they want to uh, apply to be admitted to the exam schools. And, and you uh, must and take for, it, right? So, th so that it's a requirement. Yes, it's a, re it's a requirement if you want to apply to the exam schools. It's, it's an optional exam. If, you don't, if you're not interested in the exam schools, you don't have to take it. It's, um, historically, it's been offered, I believe, on um, a Saturday in the fall, uh, it was, I think late October, early November. Mm -hmm. Uh, at a few sites around the city. I believe the, the public school system is now moving to a model where they're going to be offering it still on the weekend, but in, in individual schools so that students uh, don't have to travel as far. There's been some talk about trying to bring the exam onto actual school days. Right. Uh, but, but regardless, it's an optional exam that is not part of the, not mandatory, it's not part of the sort of typical school day for okay. most people. Okay, right, right, right. And so and then also so the so Boston public school students can take the IC exam and and also with their GPA submit for admission to one of the exam schools and then really any student who lives in the city of Boston also can apply to be admitted to the exam That's schools. That's right. And so so, it, so could, a number of applicants yeah. to the exam schools are coming from non-public schools such as private or parochial schools. Okay. And 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 how does the um, system rectify any discrepancies in how GPAs are assigned um, since it's 50% it, of the admission? It does not. There okay. is, as far as I can tell, absolutely no attempt to um, guarantee that a, a given GPA means the same thing across schools, um, which I think is a major, a major concern. It's actually not the focus of our study so much, but it's certainly something to be worried about 
given how sort of notoriously subjective GPA can be, particularly in fifth and sixth grade, um, right. and particularly when teachers might be aware that the GPA, the grades they're assigned to students, are going to be used as part of a high-stakes decision, there may be more pressure on teachers teaching, you know, students whose parents want them to go to those schools to assign high GPAs uh, to those kids. And so, um, as I said, it, it wasn't actually a focal point of our study, but it is absolutely something to be concerned about the fact that 50% of the sort of score that determines your admission to the exam school system is based on a, a, a very non-standardized yeah. And so I, so I agree with you. I think that is something to be concerned about. What was interesting to me when I was talking to other folks about this is that the flip side sounds like it's also true. If you're in a school or in a neighborhood where it's not considered an important thing to do to get into an exam school, there's less focus on yeah. GPA assignment. So so kind of on both sides of the coin, it, it could be really Absolutely. sort of outside, outside of the range of, of I don't know, what, what someone would be judging as kind of the normal for for. Um, the GPA side of the coin. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so then, well, I, so I want you to break, I wanted you to break down for us because I thought it was very interesting how you, how you looked at the ways that we, that the city might increase applications to the exam school and then, and then actually shift the, um, the admissions of certain students. And it's interesting that not, you know, you evaluated several different, ways to go about it. Not many of them move the needle. Could, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, yeah, let me, let me back up for one second and just say that one of the, one of the big findings that, that I think was, was pretty striking in our study was that, um, uh, that, th- that there are gaps uh, by race and ethnicity in all stages of this exam school admissions process. So black and Hispanic students are uh, much less likely to take this uh, the, this ISE exam than uh, white and Asian students are. Uh, when they take it, they, they tend to score lower. Uh, they are much less likely when they take it to list the Boston Latin School, the most selective of these three schools, as their top choice. And all of those facts have been decently well known. But what was new, what we did in our brief was to say, for those people who think that this is entirely about differences in underlying ac- academic achievement between black and Hispanic students and others in the school system, what we did is we, we looked just at a set of high achieving students, the students in the district whose fifth grade MCAT scores, their standardized test scores as determined by the state, which all the students in the, in the school, the public schools have to take. We focused on those who scored in the top 25%, which is basically where the exam schools draw almost all of their enrollment from. Right. And what we found was that even when we compared uh, black and Hispanic students to white and Asian students, all of whom were in the top 25% by this measure of academic achievement, we still saw gaps in the rate of uh, taking the exam of how students were scoring uh, of their likelihood of listing Boston Latin School as, as their top choice. All of which is to say that that you cannot explain the lack of diversity entirely by differences in underlying academic achievement. Well, right. that there is a set, there's a set of high achieving black and Hispanic students who are not putting themselves in the running for these exam schools. And so one of our sort of that led us to the conclusion that one, I would say 
pretty substantial revision to the admissions process, but one that might actually generate some real change in, in diversity, particularly at Boston Latin School, would be to do something like say, we're not going to use this ISEE exam, this optional exam who, who, that asks questions that are not particularly aligned to the curriculum being taught in the schools. Instead, let's just use scores from the MCAS exam because all students are automatically taking that. It's supposed to be relatively aligned with the curriculum that the Boston public schools are teaching. And therefore, we suspect that it's going to um, be a, a sort of better and more accurate measure of you know, who is a high achieving student who is taking advantage of the, the schooling that they're exposed to, as opposed to what we think is happening now on the ISEE exam, uh, which is there's a lot of evidence that the way students score high on that exam is to do a ton of test prep through right. private tutoring. So, so for and, me, and any kind of, yeah, sorry. Uh, well, so for me, that was the punchline of, of your study is that you, you looked at all these different scenarios, right? All, if all students are required to take the IC, which they're not required this year, but it's, it is being offered to all students for the first time ever. Um, yeah. you know, and, and how elegantly that process um, happens this year well, is kind of the, the jury's still out because my understanding is that the invitations went out only in English and um, there there's a mm-hmm. lot of requirement on the parents' side to fill out a pretty long application that's a little bit confusing in order to, to um, yep. allow their children to take the IC on the day that it's being given in school and without yep. the... Um, Without the essay section, so so that's those same results couldn't be used to to apply to private schools if if um, a family wanted to actually apply to both. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you did say okay, well here's one option: is all students are required to take the IC, and that moved the needle a little bit. Um, and then you suggested okay, maybe we just do invitations purely on the IC and forget about GPA for the reasons that we talked about before. Right. That moved the needle about the same amount, really just from 21 percent of students being black and Hispanic to about 23 percent of students being black and Hispanic. Yep. And then, and then you, then you moved on to say, okay, well, what if we ignore the IC takers rankings and just assign the highest achievers in BLS that moved the needle a, yep. a tiny bit more. Um, and, and so, and then there was this kind of aha moment where you said, okay, well, why don't we look at the MCAS? Cause everyone's taking it. And, um, yep. and by default, they're all prepping for it. Right, because the state's looking right. at those scores, which is right. very interesting right. to me. Because your point about the ICs are won, quote unquote, by by additional prep, simply means that we're just we're just spending a lot of time. We're already spending a bunch of time preparing kids to achieve well on an MCAS, and now and now we're saying okay, and then we're going to go outside of the system for kids who are high achievers and have them also spend a bunch of time prepping for this IC test. And, and right. are there any significant differences between the IC test and the MCAS test? Or are they both sort of telling us so the my, same thing? My understanding is that, that one of the big differences is, is, is that there are um, topics covered on the IC exam that are not typically covered in fifth or the beginning of sixth grade in uh, Boston public schools. So as one example, my understanding is that there, there is uh, some algebra, some simple algebra mm-hmm. on the IC exam. And if you're a student who's gone through a typical Boston Public Schools sort of fifth grade curriculum, you very well may never have seen any algebra or algebraic thinking before. And therefore, the only way you could do well in those questions is to have gotten some tutoring specifically using past exams or from folks who you know, know that algebra is going to be on the exam. And so to me, the, the sort of fundamental question here is, 
you know, if you're running an exam school system, you need you need to be able to rank people and select them by definition. Right. And then the question is, why would you why would you choose a standardized test that is sort of that we know some people choose not to take and test topics that are not necessarily what you're learning in the classroom versus one where everyone's taking it and and is actually well aligned with what they're supposed to be learning. So so my sense is the uh, the IC exam is largely selecting students on the basis of, of sort of how motivated their parents are, right. whereas the MCAT is not doing it nearly to that extent. It's not that it's not related to those things, but but presumably it is, the MCAT would be a better standardized measure of, um, you know, an underlying academic achievement yeah. or ability or, or however you want to term it. it. It certainly seems like it to me. Just out of curiosity, as a math teacher... Does, does all of yeah. this drive you mad that we're spending this much time <laughs> <laughs> teaching our kids how to take a couple of tests? So, so I guess what I would say is um, I actually am a fan of standardized tests in moderation because I think when well-designed, they can help teachers um, get clarity about the curriculum they're supposed to be teaching. Mm-hmm. But this is, a, this is a case where the students are already taking the MCAT. You know, the, the time is being devoted right. to whatever curriculum that is. To layer on another standardized test, which I, I don't quite understand what additional value that additional test has, yeah. that does strike me as a bit bonkers. It's such, um, it's such a good question. Or we'll have to ask that question of some yeah. others. Who, I, who I do think the, the, one, the one thing I will admit, I mean, um, you know, it's, it's easy enough for me to say these critiques. The one thing that is legally and maybe politically challenging mm. is that um, students who are in private schools, non-public schools in Boston are not legally allowed to take the MCAT. Yeah. So I read that. Why? Why why is there a law that, that, why, why would that possibly be a law? I don't know. I assume that, uh, that based on the state's desire not to have to spend money scoring exams of students that are not in the public school system, but I could be wrong. I don't know the origin of that law, but Mm. that's something that, that the system would have to deal with if it, if it moved toward using the MCAT, it would have to come up with some kind of option for non-public school students. Perhaps those students would take the IC and, and, and the Boston Public Schools would try to figure out what score on that exam was equivalent to a given MCAT score. But, but I, I will admit that that's a, that's a challenge that I, I'm not sure what the right answer is. Right. So we have to figure that out. And, and so even though, so if, if we move to that sort of system where, Kids were um, admitted based on MCAS scores, and I'm assuming that that ruled out GPAs as well, right? That was purely on MCAS yep, score, score performance. Right. Yep. And so it, it would it's the it's the intervention that proves in your study the most promising, raising the admissions from 21 percent to 30 percent of black and Hispanic kids. Um, but it, it still leaves still a not, ton of yeah. kids out, and yep. and so you did kind of opine on that a little bit. And are, yeah. are there any, I mean, what, so I guess if you were going to do another study that went downstream, yeah. what would you look at? Yeah. I mean, so, so that's right. So even if we move to this somewhat radical, you know, or, or, or sort of big change I've talked about, which is let's, let's find all the high achievers as measured by the fifth grade MCAS and, and get them into, you know, the Boston Latin school, it, it would make a, it would make a big difference for diversity there, but it still would not mean that the Boston Latin school is representative of the district as a whole. And that's because there is a, you know, on average, though there are, though there are many high achieving black and Hispanic students who are not currently sort of using the exam schools, 
um, as we might want them to, there still is a big achievement gap on average between black and Hispanic students and white and Asian students, on the other hand, in the right. district. Right. And so I, I think, you know, the the really hard question, and it's always, it's the $64,000 question, is always, how do you work on closing that gap early on? Uh, there's a sort of intermediate question, which is, okay, th- that gap is there, at least as measured by sort of standardized test scores. Um, do we want to... Um, in some sense, alter the the definition of sort of academic skill or merit that we are currently using to admit students to exam schools to to encompass something that seems a little more I don't know if holistic is the right word, but mm. for example, you, you know there are um, advocacy groups in Boston who say, look, why don't we admit to the exam schools you know the top five percent of kids from each school in the district, right? Right. right, which and then is a you very choice, different yeah. mode of selecting students than saying you just have to be the top scorer, period. Right. And there are advantages and disadvantages to that. It would certainly achieve diversity more, but it might, uh, you know, if I, were the, if I were the exam schools, I would certainly be more concerned about the preparation of students coming in to the school. It would probably be a wider variation than, than they'd seen before. So, yeah, I agree. But, but that's, that's one way you could go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing is, right, like your study shows that there are plenty of kids to, you could also create another exam school. There's, pl- there's plenty of smart yeah. kids who are just being left out of the system. Yeah, I should uh, say, I mean, one thing that, that, I, that I should be clear about that was interesting to us is that, the, you know, a lot of the focus in, uh, in the sort of politics and the media about the exam schools in Boston has really been about the Boston Latin School, the sort of most selective right. of the three schools where diversity, which is not particularly diverse and has had a number of um, sort of incidents that have been very unpleasant for uh, black and Hispanic students at the school. The other two exam schools, the Boston Latin Academy and the O'Brien School, are actually more substantially more representative and more diverse um, um, compared to the district as a whole. And so to me, it seems like a a big part of the challenge is how do you get that sort of most most selective institution closer to what you want to see? Um, uh, because the other two schools are not not doing so badly on that front. Actually. So do you think, is that the um, influx from the private schools that's shifting the balance so much? Yeah, that certainly may be it. I mean, it, it certainly may be that, um, uh, and, I, and I just don't, I don't remember the numbers on this, but, but sort of anecdotally, I certainly know of parents whose attitude is, you know, they're going to, tr- their kids are in a private school or, or maybe in the public school, they're going to try to get them into the Boston Latin school. And if that doesn't work out, then they're going to sort of, they're going to stay in the private sector or, you know, move out of the city. And mm-hmm. so I do think there's, there's a sense in which there's a set of, um, you know, higher income parents who view the Boston Latin school as its sort of own thing and don't don't view the other two schools as viable alternatives yeah it's, uh, it's an interesting question and, and actually it makes me wonder if, if you looked if you if you readed the study through the lens of poverty you know it yeah. haves versus half nots for it instead of through yeah. the lens of race does it come out the same do you think you know i my memory is that at one point we you know we did something like that. I mean, our, our original goal was really to think about racial diversity because that had been a, uh, a very salient issue, particularly at Boston Latin School. Sure. I think you get, I, my memory is that you get a fairly similar story when you do things by income, but I, 
but it's been a while since we looked at those numbers. I mean, they didn't make it into the final brief, so I don't want to make any claims that, that I can't fully support. No, yeah, no, no. no. I, I just I, I was curious about that because for me, you know, the, the the end of the story, the end of your study, kind of as you sit back and think about it. For me, it kind of it just it tells this tale of two school systems sitting within you know the Boston Public Schools brand. But, you know, one yeah. tracks kids, you know, in a very specific way towards exam schools. And, and one yeah. seems to leave kids behind because there's just no way that, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that's just not smart enough. It seems to me that they're just not yeah. prepared enough. And, and so there's a real question for me in, in what sort of where are we lacking preparations in order to to put equity on par for, for all students. No, that's absolutely true. And, and part of the answer to that is, you know, getting our schools to be even better. Although, you know, part of it is schools can only do so much, right? You know, right. poverty is a, a serious barrier and, you know, good schools can help. But, but in a way, we may be putting too much pressure on the school system to solve a set of challenges that, that you know, they're not equipped to do. And, and, and broader public policy you know, changes would have to occur to fix those issues. Yeah. And I mean, that's right where we ended up with Michael Contempasis, which was, um, this has really got to be a partnership between the city and the schools because part of, part of what is holding kids back is what's happening in neighborhoods around the city and, um, you know, and, and the influence that adults have on our students. And, and then part of it is, is obviously the responsibility of the school system, but they really have to work in tandem in order to create environments that, where all kids can learn kind of equally, no matter where they are in the city. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, as the, I, I study education policy for a living, but I'm increasingly convinced that, that, that actually if I wanted to make the biggest difference in the world, I would turn some of my energies to thinking about housing policy and transit policy and thinking about how we can lower housing costs for Boston families and, you know, make transit better so they can get to good jobs. Right, uh, right. All that, all that stuff I think would make a big difference in kids' lives. So, and the other thing, the last question I have is you talked also about student choice and how that plays into yeah. to the results. And, and so it, yeah. what have you, in all of the work that you've done, what have you learned about why kids choose the high schools that they choose? Yeah. So, so right. So, so we observed in this study that, you know, even the, the, you know, super high achieving black and Hispanic students, they're substantially less likely to choose BLS, the Boston Latin School, as their first choice. Now, that could be for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, uh, black and Hispanic students tend to live in neighborhoods in Boston that are farther from the Latin schools, so and maybe they don't want to travel as far. Um, but part of it may be that they don't, you know, the, the headlines and the sort of um, uh, the, the reputation of the Boston Latin School is, is not one that's particularly friendly to minority students. Uh, I think that has been changing in the last couple of years, I would hope. Um, but, but, you know, students are not stupid and part of their decision-making process is where do I think, where do I think I'll fit in? Where do I see, you know, prior, you know, peers of mine, older students, older siblings, where have they gone to school? Mm -hmm. Um, So I've I've been doing some work recently about uh, showing that where your older sibling uh, goes to college turns out to have a very big impact on your own college choices. And there's, there's no reason to think that's not true in the high school setting as well, that uh, you, t- you take your cues from the people around you. Mm-hmm, and if, right. uh, if a school has a reputation that, you know, is not hospitable to you, then you, you'll, you'll apply to a different school. Do you and look- so I think there's, you know, yeah, sorry. Oh, good. No, I was going to say, do you have a point of view on, I mean, 
Which would which would just hypothetically have better um, outcomes for kids? Like can kind of continuing with this exam school system, but trying to optimize it in ways that you've talked about, or um, breaking it apart entirely and and having kids of all talents at at the right number of schools across the city with AP courses being offered at all of them, and you know, and a real focus on academics for all kids and and that, yeah, and that this, this mix of students. This is a really hard and interesting question. Um, you know, one thing I'll say, so, you know, I, I see arguments on both sides. I think on the one hand, having exam schools in existence, in some sense, um, you know, uh, concentrates a lot of the district's energy on a small number of students, um, a small number of talented students, and then sort of maybe takes away focus from a broader set of high schools that need, need to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I, I can understand that if you know if you're if you're a high achieving student or the parent of a high achieving student, you know there are all kinds of amazing things that can happen to you if you're put in a room with you know kids you know as high achieving as you are, right? Sure, um, sure. You need you need critical masses of students to do an AP class, for example. Mm-hmm. And you know I don't I, I think it's really hard to answer sort of what what's the best system. Uh, you know, one thing I'll point out is actually that that. Boston is relatively unusual. There are not actually that many um, cities in the U.S. or, or school districts that have exam school systems. The vast mm. majority do not. Mm. Um, you know, New York is one of them. Chicago is another. There aren't too many other examples that I can think and of. And they're old, right? Um, they're, it's 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 partially tradition. Yeah, and, and, at, and at least in New York, the number of students educated in those schools is much smaller. The fraction is much smaller than in Boston. You know, the fact that the fact that the three exam schools in Boston educate 25% of students, I'm not sure there's any other school district where something like that happens. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I think the question you've asked is a really good one, but it's, you know, it's, it's even harder to answer than questions about, you know, how do we run a better admission system for the no. exam schools as they currently exist? I 100% agree with you. It just, you know, I think, I, I have not done this yet, but I'm going to do it. But I, I bet if you run the numbers on the results of testing in the exam schools, right, and then you separate it out yeah. and, and you and you have the results of all of the other schools where all of the, yeah. the other 75%, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that our, our great numbers in Boston are reflective of, of those three schools. For the most That's part, yeah, I don't yeah, know, it may be. but um, yeah, I think it's, it's probably a good yeah, it's, it's a good question. Yeah. There's, but there's no question, regardless of where you end up, sort of falling on the should we have exam schools or not. That regardless of whether we have them, it's a little it, it's counterproductive to spend all of our energy talking about them, given that still 75% of students in the district are being educated elsewhere in other schools. That's uh, right. That's right. That's a very yeah, good point. So. All right. Well, Josh, thank you very much for your time today. This is fantastic. Um, I enjoyed, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed your paper very much, and I look forward to reading more of your work. Thanks very much. I really appreciate you sort of helping helping get this work out there and, and making the discussion about these issues uh, hopefully a little bit more informed. Absolutely. Thanks, Josh. Have a great day. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Josh Goodman. His study is a terrific read, and you can find a link to it on our blog post. In my opinion, it clearly suggests some interesting policy changes that should be considered and debated, but even more so, it hints at some areas that we should be digging into to improve our education system holistically for students in our city. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.